Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. I'm going to back Dave up a little bit and just say Merry Christmas. Did everybody have a great Christmas? Seems kind of a little bit maybe uh, ringy in the back, but that's okay. Everybody get uh, time to spend family time to spend with family and friends. Everybody, uh, <clears throat> I know of one gift that keeps sticking in my mind, and I'm sure it's not the. I'm sure it's, this person is not the only person that received cash for Christmas. But I will guarantee you that he's the only person that received cold hard cash. Am I right? More than likely. Oh, some people's kids are real pranksters. And Grandpa Jim over here got a $20 bill frozen in a block of ice. Cold, hard cash. That was the funniest gift that I heard all the whole season. But we're glad you guys are here and we're glad that, uh, that you made it here safe and uh, glad you're here to worship and uh, praise the Lord with us and also to look into the Word with us. We're taking a couple weeks break from preaching through First Peter. Uh, so last week was that first week of that break away from First Peter. Today is going to be kind of the second part to that. And uh, last week we talked about kind of what I consider to be um, kind of a lesser talked about topic when it comes to the Christmas narrative. Uh, and a lot is... is uh, is read and should be read out of the book of Luke. Uh, but last week we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 2, and we looked at the Magi and, and their whole story uh, coming from the East. We looked at the idea that there was kind of three types of responses to who this baby King Jesus was that was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Uh, there was, just by way of quick recap, there was Herod, the counterfeit king, he was the king at the time. He was called the king of the Jews, not because he was Jewish, but because he was kind of branded that title from Rome uh, because that was the area that he ruled. And he did so in kind of a bipolar way, you might say. Uh, he was, a, on one hand, an empire builder. Uh, he built a lot of great uh, buildings in, in Israel. And, of course, um, probably the most well-known was the Herod's Temple, but he was also a very vicious, vindictive uh, type of person and type of leader. In fact, uh, he would defend his, this is how we characterized him last week, he would defend his position of leadership at any cost, including the lives of his own kids, including the lives of one of his many wives. He defended that position at any cost. The second uh, of the three types was the chief priests and scribes, and we've described them as really the religious disinterested. Here's all of this, this, uh, all of this action that's happening, all of this, this huge uh, entourage of people coming from the east, who by way of history we know that they were in conflict with Rome, yet here they're coming into Roman territory asking where this baby is, that's to be born king of the Jews, one of the areas that Rome had conquered and was, was ruling over with a heavy hand. And here comes this enemy out of, out of the east to declare this new ruler and who is he and where is he, where is this baby found? Really, it shook Herod up. It shook up the religious disinterested because they, in a different way, they were only asking, you know, hey, what does the, what does the Bible say about this? 
And so they gave Herod a response, but they really weren't interested. They weren't interested in who Jesus was. They weren't interested in, in uh, we described them this way. They knew about the scriptures, but they did not know the Savior. They knew what the Bible said. They could quote scripture in verse, but they didn't have a relationship. They weren't anticipating like the Magi were. They were not anticipating this baby king coming on the scene, especially not in the way that it happened. So they were really disinterested in the whole thing. We'll get into that a little bit later in the sermon, but uh, they, came, they became very interested the more that Jesus grew and the more that he taught. But at this point in the story, they were pretty disinterested. The third type of response came from the Magi, the wise worshipers. And we describe them this way, or maybe I just recapped it today in this direction, is that they risk everything to find the Messiah and to worship him. They risk everything, their reputation, their wealth, uh, their position. Everything was on the line so that they could follow up on what Daniel had taught down through the centuries, what was taught to them about the star, about the coming Messiah, the coming king of the Jews. And so they put it all on the line, time and treasure, to find this baby king and to worship him you see as we look into the scriptures we see jesus uh, this way i see him this way and i see it as a good thing i think our uh there's many different views on this perhaps um, but as a man jesus was polarizing if you read through the gospel accounts and all that jesus taught and all that he did and the way he the way that he carried himself the way that he responded to people, good and bad, the way that he was you know, taught the people, the way that he uh, rebuffed and rebuked the religious leaders of the day, he, if he was anything, he was polarizing. I see that as a good thing. I see that as a good thing. And still, and still in our day, what's one of the most common statements uh, when it comes to the holidays and dinners, what's what's taboo for us today? When it comes to holiday dinners and and get-togethers, what's not usually on the table for most get-togethers to talk about? Let me put it that way. What does everybody say? Two things: politics and religion. That's right. Politics and religion. Why? Because it's polarizing. Now. If you come to our house, or if you go to the houses that we go to celebrate, uh, we dive right in on top of it. It's like, this is what we're here for. Let's kick this thing around, right? We love it. But in a lot of places, it's taboo. Oh, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to get old Aunt Bessie all riled up. She don't think the same as us. Uncle Fred, eh, he's pretty staunch in his views. Religion and politics are kind of polarizing. Doesn't mean that we should shy away from them. It's just the reality of where things are. They're polarizing in this way is that these topics are the things really that most people are most passionate about. Either on the for or against. And so if you know kind of who to line up with in a conversation, you can have what would be considered a good conversation but if there's people that think differently or 
believe differently than you do, it can be kind of stressful. Either way, either way, it is really the areas that push people's buttons. The same was true in the first century. So it's really interesting to me as we dive into the Bible today, it's interesting to me that not just Jesus, the grown man, was polarizing, but Jesus, the baby king, was polarizing. He was polarizing from the get-go as part of who he was. And we're going to look into some of that, that uh, difficulty this morning. There's a part of the Christmas story that we want to get to and look at today. And we want to look at just one follow-up example as to what we're talking about. Uh, where he brings, where Jesus brings into focus the reality of who is who. So turn with me, if you will, and it'll be up on the screen, I believe. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 gives us a glimpse at what the new parents, what baby Jesus would be doing as a normal family. I'm just going to give you a little intro into where we're going to go. In chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, we're going to see a few things here. We're going to see that Jesus has, <clears throat> has been born and on the eighth day is coming to the temple to be circumcised. Uh, after Mary's days of purification had happened and they brought Jesus to the temple for the special offering to the Lord, the offering of the firstborn. All of that is found, if you want some Old Testament context, all of that's found in Leviticus chapter 12. All of Leviticus chapter 12 talks about what you do with a firstborn child and all that goes with all that. So that's kind of the background of it. But that's just to set us up for where we're going today. And that's this scripture in Luke chapter 2, verses 25. It reads, <coughs> Excuse me. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents had brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the people. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled, speaking of Mary, Joseph and his mother, Jesus' mother, Mary, marveled at the things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." that the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. Part of what made Je Jesus so special as an adult was this concept that was spoken about him as a baby. Part of what makes Jesus so unique in our lives as Christ followers is because of this principle, that thoughts are going to be revealed, that the thoughts of the hearts are going to be opened up and talked about. 
See, Simeon had been looking for God's promised one. Notice the, skim back over with me, if you will, the description of, some of someone looking for God's will. Just, devout, and waiting. Simeon had God's revelation. He operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is before the Holy Spirit was there for every believer, yet he was operating full well in full power according to God's Holy Spirit. And then, of course, he embraced Jesus. He took him in his arms and he blessed him. Notice that Simeon didn't shy away from the tough topics either. For my eyes have seen your salvation, he says in verse 30, which you have prepared before the face of all people. Uh, Jesus was no secret. He wasn't, you know, he was born in a stable, stable, yeah. He was born out of the limelight, yes. But he was not like tucked away and then to just be revealed as an adult. God was preparing this in front of everyone, the word says. Verse 32, which is one of the tough topics for the days, one I'm sure that brought a lot of question marks. It says, A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Simeon tells Joseph and Mary that Jesus was this type of person, essentially. That this little baby that you're going to care for, that you're going to nurture, this little baby that is, that is so special, this little baby, you're gonna, there's gonna, this is going to be a crazy ride as parents. Those of you that are here that are, that are parents know that raising your kids is an interesting journey, to say the least. And this was going to be true, probably more true for Mary and Joseph for this reason. This little baby, this little baby that's caused so much stir, and, is, and if you think about the timeline, this is ahead of, actually, Matthew chapter 2. This little baby is going to cause quite a stir quite a bit of stir because he's polarizing behold this Christ is destined this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel what does that mean and for sign which will be spoken against yes he's talking to Mary he says even your own heart is going to be pierced so there's tough days ahead for you mom there's tough days ahead but it's not just about you it's about the fact that this little baby, this little baby boy, that he's going to reveal the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts in a way that's never been done before. You're talking about polarizing. You're talking about being able to argue both sides of the conversation. This is what's said of Jesus. See, Jesus reveals the thoughts of people to bring out this point. If you don't go away with anything else, go away with this. Jesus reveals the thoughts of people, and you're going to see this all through the Scriptures. You see this all through the Gospels. Jesus brings out the thoughts and intents of people's hearts. I was like, He knows what's in their mind. He knows what's in their heart. He's not doing it to tear them down. He's doing it. He's bringing it out to reveal objective truth. That's His point and purpose, to show who He is to show that he is the Messiah, and to do it in an objective way. The reasons that politics and religions are avoided often is that people seldom embrace, people seldom embrace objective truth. It's really, really hard if we think about it. If we think about the conversations we had, 
we're hardwired to think a certain way, or we're, we're staunch on this, and, and objective truth oftentimes, and the more a couple people argue about these two topics, I just brought up these two only because they're two that are most avoided in this time of the year, people avoid or they shy away from or they run away from embracing objective truth. See, often in the gospel accounts, we can read statements like, uh, uh, statements of Jesus that start this way, knowing their hearts, then he'll say something or he'll do something, or perceiving their thoughts, and then he'll go ahead and say and teach or do something or whatever. We're going to jump into one of those examples here in just a minute. But Jesus was a master at peeling back the layers and revealing what is under the surface for people. It's a great illustration, a great picture, and we say often around here, I know I say this a lot, is that what I've found in my nearly 50 years is that God parents, and He demonstrates how to parent for us, He demonstrates and is an example of parenting for us because God parents from the inside out. God starts at the heart and works out to the actions rather than starting at the actions to try to burrow in and affect the heart. God goes the other way around. And Jesus is an excellent example all through the Gospels of how that plays out. He starts with their thoughts. His work is intended to change us from the heart out. So let's fast forward a little bit into the life of Jesus, into the Gospel of Luke. Actually, you just go to the right to chapter 11. I'll go there with you. Luke chapter 11 is a great example of where we see this playing out in an intense, strange situation. Not strange to him, probably really strange to us. But he brings objective truth into this tense situation. So to set up where we're going to go next, uh, Luke records for us that Jesus has been spending time praying uh, when one of his disciples kind of interrupts him and says, Hey Lord, will you teach us how to pray? And so he goes through, uh, you know, the Lord's, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Some people call it the Disciples' Prayer. The reality is, is that it was the prayer that Jesus said, hey, model after this. Don't just memorize the words as if it doesn't mean anything. Model your approach to God, your conversation with God in this way. And so he leads them through the Lord's Prayer there in chapter 11, 1 through 4. He then proceeds to teach them about the reality that persistence pays off. In other words, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep going, keep seeking from the Lord. And he uses some different illustrations and some ideas in that vein. That's Luke 11, 5 through 13. To get to where we're going today, Luke 11, verse 14. And I went one page too far. Luke eleven fourteen says, And he was casting, speaking to Jesus, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Belizebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. And a pin drops. Right? See, in the first century, and I, I, I don't think, I think that we just see it because it's recorded so. I wouldn't say that this is uh, across the board. 
But in the first century, the demonic activity seems to be really ramped up in the timeline of history. Jesus was constantly addressing demonic activity. I don't think that's gone away for us. I don't believe that's true. But I think here we see this uh, heightened amount of demonic activity, Jesus right in the middle of it. Why that was so, um, a lot of scholars have a lot to say about this, and I'm not going to drone on and on about what they have to say. Um, I'm going to give you kind of my own thoughts. I think that uh, here come the Savior onto the scene, and Satan says, well, I probably better bring my A game too. So there was a lot of demonic activity. There was a lot of demonic oppression going on in those days. He was and always has, speaking of Satan, been in pursuit of the throne. So trying to take out Jesus, even as an infant, we didn't get to that last week in Matthew chapter 2, but that was really the reality of Satan was using Herod in Matthew 2 to try to take out Jesus as a little baby. Didn't work. Uh, God foiled that plan, as it were. He had it all prepared that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus would escape into Egypt for a time until Herod was dead. Herod, in the meantime, takes out all of the babies, all of the, the little boys in Galilee, hoping that maybe this big sweep of genocide would somehow take out this prophesied future king of Israel so it'd just be over and done with. That's why I say he stopped at nothing to defend his own throne. That was part of, I believe, Satan's playbook. Or as Jesus was coming out of the wilderness, there's another great example in Matthew chapter 4, after 40 days of prayer and fasting, Satan was right there to tempt him three times, which is actually a whole other maybe set of sermons for another time. But it is a great look at how prayer and fasting is a great, the, perhaps our greatest preparation for a time of, of spiritual rebuff and spiritual oppression and Satan coming against us, spiritual warfare, all of that. But despite Satan's best efforts to derail Jesus early on, Jesus prevailed, of course. And on this occasion that we're reading about, Jesus is freeing someone who couldn't speak which in that day, to us, it doesn't seem like any big deal. In that day, it was extremely interesting. Interesting because many times in the Gospels, we see or read about Jesus asking what the demon's name is. But in this case, the demon caused the person to be mute. See, the the Jews in Jesus' day, they had their own exorcist. They had their own way of dealing with, with demonic activity. These exorcists who sought out and cast out demons out of people, but they believed that they had to make the demon reveal his name or they had to, or they didn't have any authority. You guys get that? So, so if you ask the demon what its name is, then you can have authority over that demon to then command it to do thus and so. We've probably all had this experience in a different context. What in the world am I guy talking about? When I was a kid, when I was a kid, and I heard these three words 
yelled at me or, or uh, uh, brought to me, maybe not yelled, brought to me in an a, a authoritative voice, it made me pay attention and it made me realize that I'm under authority. You guys know what those three words are? Mark Allen Hopkins. I heard that a fair amount as a kid. My wire's all goofy. A fair amount as a kid. That was the sign for me to say, young man, you're under authority. You need to do this. You need to be drawn into account for that. In the same way, in that same principle, you might say, that's what was going on here. The reality is, though, is that these Jewish, Jewish exorcists, they couldn't get the name from the person that was demon-possessed because the demon had the power to make the person mute, which means the person couldn't speak, the demon couldn't speak through the person. And Jesus blows them all away by dealing with the situation, even without asking a name. It was polarizing. It was intriguing. And that's why it says the multitudes marveled. That's why it says the multitudes marveled. See, Jesus' authority is absolute. Unbound by social norms or expectations. See, according to the Jewish thinking of that day, the demon was impossible to cast out. But not impossible for Jesus. When people saw this great work, they had really two reactions. That's why I came up with the idea of religion and politics. Because really people have two reactions to religion and politics. But in this situation, they had this reaction. Verse 15 says, Some attributed the work of Jesus to Satan. And some wanted to see more miracles before they would believe. That's verse 15 and 16. There's always some sort of reaction when something big and unexplainable happens. It's human nature to try to figure out that which is really mysterious. Verse 17 goes on to say, but he, speaking of Jesus, and here's our connecting thoughts, no pun intended, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, knowing where they're going with this, said to them, really? I mean, that's my paraphrase. Really? That's, this, is how, this is how weak your argument is. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house falls. If Satan is also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? They're bringing up a ridiculous argument. He's telling them how ridiculous it is. Because you say, I cast out demons by Belizebub, and if I cast out demons by Belizebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stranger that comes up to him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. And verse 23 is perhaps another extremely polarizing statement that Jesus brings out. He says, He who is not with me is against me, 
and he who does not gather with me scatters. And the crowds fall over backwards and their heads explode. That's my paraphrase. <laughs> That's my translation. They couldn't believe what he was saying. They thought he would fold at the idea that, that uh, they're accusing him of working for the other team. Oh, yeah, he, yeah, he has control over you know, this mute. He can do something special because he's part of Satan's team. That was their plan. It was a horrible plan. It was a terrible argument. There was no objective truth completely subjective to their own thoughts. So, knowing their thoughts, he tunes them up. See, Jesus is bringing to light the foolishness of the Jews' thinking. And he does that by teaching us in a way that puts people at a decision point in life. He's bringing them truth, but he brings them to a point of decision. He does the same for us. He brings objective truths that can be easily understood, but are not always readily accepted. Do we understand that? Jesus brings objective truths that can be easily understood. They understood what he was saying. They just didn't accept it. Some of them. Some of them did. They're not always readily accepted. Let's look at the ten truths of following Jesus through this chapter or through this piece anyway, chapter 11. No group can last if division dominates. That's the first truth he brings up. No group, no group of people, no kingdom, he uses the word kingdom, so no, we could say this, no country, you could make it smaller than that, I think that the principle applies, no state, no county, right? You want to make it smaller? No community, you want to make it smaller than that? No church. We can make it smaller. No family. We can make it smaller yet. No marriage can stand when there's division. However you want to place that in your life today, that's up to you. But the reality of the principle of the Word of God is true. When there's division, when division is bigger than the unity, it's not going to last. Our country stands at a real crossroads. And it's not because of the election. We've been at a crossroads for some time. You guys realize that, that not a, a, a kingdom of man in the history of mankind, the average lifespan of a worldly kingdom, if you will, is 250 years. We're at 244. We've never been more divided either. So our country stands at a real crossroads. That's why after the election, from the pulpit here, I said, hey, we, as believers, this election should teach us at least one thing, is that we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work. We have at least half of our country that believes that genocide is okay. Probably at least half. Maybe there's more. So we have a lot of gospel sharing we have a lot of encouragement. We have a lot of objective truth that is true regardless of what people's positions are. We have a lot of truth that needs to be shared. Right? A house divided against itself, it's not going to make it. So no group can last 
if division dominates. Jesus goes on to say that Satan doesn't cast out his own. It's, it's foolish thinking. It's not even logical. The third point, the third truth, is that future believers will prove Jesus right. That's that piece in there. Uh, verse 19, And if I cast out demons by Belizebub, so he's saying, like, hypothetically, if this is even true, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. He's saying, hey, the future, if, if this is true of me, then what about the future believers? What about your little boys that are going to grow up and do the same thing? What about people that are following me? Are they on that same team? They're going to judge you for the statement. He goes on to say that he's working under the Father's authority. Jesus is working under the Father's authority. Critical principle in following Christ. He said, if we're in Christ, we're under the Father's authority. The fifth one is, is that the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is present. He says in verse 20, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, whether you're ready or not, it's here. So I'm working under the Father's authority. I have full authority to do exactly what I'm doing in His name. I'm not stopping for you. I'm not bound by your traditions. I'm not bound by your ways and your thoughts. God's kingdom is present. We're setting people free. Number six, strength is handy until someone stronger shows up. <laughs> you know that? Like lifting, lifting, working out. It's all nice. It's all handy until somebody bigger shows up. This thing has really caused me a problem today. Here we go. I'll go like that. So strength is handy. He's, he's trying to teach him here through this little setup story. Strength's handy until somebody stronger shows up. You guys have done all right. <clears throat> That's kind of my paraphrase. You guys have done all right. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his palace, his goods are at peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he's trusted and divides its spoils. Strength's handy until somebody else shows up. Then he goes on to say, you're either for Jesus or you're against. You either gather or you scatter. Remember that some wanted to test him, and in reality, Jesus was testing them with objective truth. He was testing them. They wanted to see, oh, is this guy genuine? Is this guy real? Is he the real deal? His methods are really strange. His ways are different than our ways. In reality, I think that he was testing them more than they testing him. A few questions as we wind down here. Will we believe in the timeless truths that Jesus is teaching? As a church, as a group of people, as a community, even as a country, we see so much of what we believe is fading away from these timeless truths of who Jesus is and what he teaches his people. What he's demonstrated for his 
disciples, what he demonstrates for us. Are we willing to stay in the, <clears throat> the grip of the enemy or remain silent? If that was you that the demon was in, would you be more prone to just stay silent and stay in that grip? If it was me, how would I respond? I would be jumping for joy. I'd be, you guys think I talk a lot now? I'd be going 100 miles an hour. If you couldn't talk, if you were held in the grip of the enemy and you couldn't talk, you couldn't communicate, wouldn't you just be talking nonstop when Jesus sets you free? It's a great picture of how we should be as new believers, as believers in Christ, about sharing our faith. Don't stay in the grip. Don't stay silent when you have the ability to speak. Or are we deceived into thinking that Jesus is on the wrong team? Are we deceived into thinking there are many people out there, many, many people that are out there that live in a reality of deception, thinking that the person that came to save them is actually on the wrong team. He's the enemy. He's the enemy. That's how a lot of people in our culture think. And if you don't think so, just watch a little of the news. If you don't think so, look at the reactions, if you want to, on social media in regard to things concerning who Jesus is. If you don't think that that's true, uh, <clears throat> if you can stand to do this, watch the History Channel during the holiday season next year and just hold your Bible up to it do like Zig Ziglar used to say. He says, every morning I get up and I spread out the newspaper and I put my Bible out. That way I see what both sides are doing. Really? That's the way the History Channel is now in regard to who Christ is. We have a great opportunity coming up here in a couple of months during the resurrection season. Resurrection Sunday. Because they're going to try to distort. They're going to try to defame. They're going to try to minimize the reality of who Jesus is, and really put him on the wrong team. Don't be deceived and definitely share with others that perhaps are deceived about that reality of who Jesus is. The fourth question is, is, can we be on the fence about who Jesus is and what he's called us to do? I don't think we can. Will we be found gathering or scattering? That's where Jesus leaves them. That's where he drops the mic. Hey, you're either going to gather or you're going to scatter. You make the call. He puts people at a decision point in life. But there's two more truths that he brings out in the next couple of passages. <clears throat> One is the reality and the principle of, principle of occupation, uh, meaning that um, is there someone living there? Not occupation as far as what do you do for work, because I know that when I say occupation, guys, we go, oh, I'm a plumber or I'm a farmer or I'm a builder. Not occupation as far as what we do for work, but occupation in regard to is someone home. We have a little joke uh, that comes out frequently with a couple knocks on the head. We're like the old, you know, adage, McFly! Anybody there? McFly? You know, is somebody home upstairs? Is somebody there? That type of uh, somebody living there. Let's keep reading in verse 24 of Luke 11. It says, When an unclean spirit 
Jesus teaching now. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes him with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. See, Jesus is uh, bringing out an important point of occupation. Essentially saying, you can kind of look all cleaned up. You can look straightened up and in order. But if there's nobody residing there, in the demonic realm, there's a freedom to enter. There's a freedom to enter. It's a great picture of someone who's delivered from a demon. Maybe he was talking about this very person. I don't know. It's a great picture of a person delivered from a demon, but not yet filled with Jesus. It's a picture of a person who tries to be neutral, perhaps. They say they're not for Satan, but they're not also really for Jesus. And Jesus brings up this objective truth, that that is impossible. He had just said, you're either for me or against me. So you're either going to be filled by me, or you're going to be filled by someone, something else. But there's no fence riding when it comes to these things. Jesus is revealing the danger of delivering a person from demonic possession without filling their life with Christ. And the truth is they can end up worse in the end than they were in the beginning. You get this principle. The heart of man is a vacuum-like. There's a vacuum-like nature to our hearts that something must be there. Something must be there. It has to be filled. And if we empty our heart from evil without filling it with Christ and His good, evil's going to return. It's going to rush in. It's going to fill the spaces. Therefore, in answering those who accused Him, therefore, in answering those who accused Him or working, or working by the power of Satan, Jesus told them that He had not merely come to fight against evil, but to bring God's good into the very hearts that he was perceiving the thoughts of. You guys get that? It's not just a matter of, hey, I'm here to just, you know, beat the enemy back and beat him back into submission, but it's really a replacement. He's here to conquer and overcome demonic activity in the lives of people, but not to just cut them loose to themselves. The goal is, is to be then filled with himself to be filled with himself verse 27 says and it happened as he spoke these things a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him I kind of like this um, last couple of verses because it's kind of like um, kind of reminds me of that person that's always kind of just shouts out kind of you know in an odd place and something that's going on at a, you know when you're at a concert and <coughs> all the big music kind of comes down the, seen this so many times and the speaker has something like you know real like um sober and important to say and maybe they're given like you know it's like you know and he's so he just comes real slow and he's, he's like just really gotta share with you guys and there's always that person in the back 
of the Colosseum. It's like, woo! You guys know what I'm talking about. There's always a person like that. At the worst possible time, although I wouldn't say that this is the worst possible time. She's excited, I think, about what's going on. But it just kind of comes in like that to me when I read through this part. But she says this. She says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. In other words, your mom is awesome. She's the best. Which is probably true. I, I think it was a genuine statement. And Jesus adds to that, actually. He doesn't rebuke the lady's statement. He adds to it by simply saying, there's something here about dedication, which is the tenth principle that we brought out today. Number nine is occupation. Number ten is dedication. He says to her this. He says, more than that. So greater than that. That's true, but what's greater than that is the fact that blessed are those who hear the word of God and they keep it. So dedication is critical in the process. Dedication is, is a critical objective truth that we have to adhere to as Christ followers. We have a daily opportunity to be dedicated to the word and to the kingdom of God. Daily opportunities show up constantly. And we have a moment-by-moment -moment opportunity to trust in the leading of God through the Holy Spirit. Embrace that. Embrace that. Embrace that because <clears throat> you, we're never going to get around this idea that, that Jesus is uh, polarizing. If you try to believe your way around somehow that Jesus is actually a polarizing figure, you've really missed the majority of what the Bible says, cover to cover. But in being polarizing, the solid ground that we stand on is his objective truth. So we come back to that spot, regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of what kind of cyclone or hurricane there is in our culture of, of information, of subjective truth, of, of mindset that the world has to offer, we can swat that away. We can swat that away because we're standing, as Christ followers, we stand on a platform, on an island of truth in Christ. That's the great thing about being a believer. That's the awesomeness about being in, in Christ and Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul says, is that we can stand on that, that objective truth and not have to be pushed around. We don't have to be, you know, we can have deep roots. We don't have to be blown over by what the world has to offer, especially when these crazy things happen. We have an awesome God who wants us to live in freedom. Objective truth is freeing. We can be free from Satan's grip over our lives. We have an awesome message to share with the hurting world around us. And we share that as we embrace what Jesus said in this chapter, as we embrace taking on being a gatherer, a gatherer. We're bringing people in. We're talking with folks. We're, we're bringing them in, bringing them in, bringing them in. I, <clears throat> running farm equipment for all the years that I've ran it, I, where's she at? Six years ago, I, brought, I bought Tammy a new swather. This is the truth. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. 
We're still, I'm still celebrating it. <laughs> but here's the truth. Uh, uh, you say it's, and, and everything, everything happens out in front of you. And if anybody of you ran like uh, any kind of farm equipment or anything, or it doesn't matter, all the action's out in front of you. You're seeing it all happen. We buy this new swather. You don't see nothing. It all goes under the... It's like running a lawnmower. You don't see what's happening in the lawnmower. And so it kind of was bizarre to learn how to run it because you're used to all this action. You're used to monitoring back and forth. Next thing you know, your neck hurts. Oh, man, it's terrible. But, uh, or running a combine. It's the same thing. You see all this grain that's just getting gobbled up and it comes to the center and it goes through the machine and the straw goes out the back and the grain ends up in the tank. Right? Gatherers gatherers, those equi- that equipment are gatherers. They're gathering produce. They're gathering uh, feed. They're, are we embraced in that type of activity in our lives where, where we can see ourselves, we can see the timeline even of our own story as we're gatherers. We're being, bringing people in. That's what Jesus calls us to be in the reality of, of, of life in Him and in following him. Worship team, if you'll come on up, we'll, uh, we'll close with our last message, or our last song. Close the message with a song. Again, I'll just restate, we have an awesome message to share with the world. Be a gatherer for Christ.